Section 33 of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness by William Godwin. Book 4, Chapter 5, Appendix. Of the Connection Between Understanding and Virtue. A proposition which, however evident in itself, seems never to have been considered with the attention it deserves, is that which affirms the connection between understanding and virtue. Can an honest plowman be as virtuous as Cato? Is a man of weak intellects and narrow education as capable of moral excellence as the sublimest genius or the mind most stored with information and in science? To determine these questions, it is necessary we should recollect the nature of virtue. Considered as a personal quality, it consists in the disposition of the mind and may be defined as a desire to promote the happiness of intelligent beings in general, the quantity of virtue being as the quantity of desire. Now desire is wholly inseparable from preference, or a perception of the excellence real or supposed of any object. I say real or supposed, for an object totally destitute of real and intrinsic excellence may become an object of desire on account of the imaginary excellence that is ascribed to it. Nor is this the only mistake to which human intellect is liable. We may desire an object of absolute excellence, not for its real and genuine recommendations, but for some fictitious attractions we may impute to it. This is always in some degree the case when a beneficial action is performed from an ill motive. How far is this mistake compatible with real virtue? If I desire the happiness of intelligent beings without a strong and vivid perception of what it is in which their happiness consists, can this desire be admitted for virtuous? Nothing seems more inconsistent with our ideas of virtue. A virtuous preference is the preference of an object for the sake of certain qualities which really belong to it. To attribute virtue to any other species of preference would be nearly the same as to suppose that an accidental effect of my conduct, which was out of my view at the time of adopting it, might entitle me to the appellation of virtuous. Hence, it appears first that virtue consists in a desire of the happiness of the species, and secondly, that that desire only can be eminently virtuous which flows from a distinct perception of the value and consequently of the nature of the thing desired. But how extensive must be the capacity that comprehends the full value and the real ingredients of true happiness? It must begin with a collective idea of the human species. It must discriminate among the different causes that produce a pleasurable state of mind, that which produces the most exquisite and durable pleasure. 
eminent virtue requires that i should have a grand view of the tendency of knowledge to produce happiness and of just political institution to favor the progress of knowledge it demands that i should perceive in what manner social intercourse may be made conducive to virtue and felicity and imagine the unspeakable advantages that may rise from a coincidence and succession of generous efforts these things are necessary not merely for the purpose of enabling me to employ my virtuous disposition in the best manner but also of giving to that disposition a just animation and vigour god according to the ideas usually conceived of that being is more benevolent than man because he has a constant and clear perception of the nature of that end which his providence pursues a further proof that a powerful understanding is inseparable from eminent virtue will suggest itself if we recollect that earnest desire in matters that fall within the compass of human exertion never fails in some degree to generate capacity this proposition has been beautifully illustrated by the poets when they have represented the passion of love as immediately leading in the breast of the lover to attainment of many arduous accomplishments it unlocks his tongue and enables him to plead the cause of his passion and insinuating eloquence it renders his conversion pleasing and his manners graceful does he desire to express his feelings in the language of verse it dictates to him the most natural and pathetic strains and supplies him with a just and interesting language which the man of mere reflection and science has often sought for in vain no picture can be more truly founded in a knowledge of human being than this the history of all eminent talents is of similar kind did themistocles desire to eclipse the trophies of the battle of marathon the uneasiness of this desire would not let him sleep and all his thoughts were occupied with the invention of means to accomplish the purpose he had chosen it is a well-known maxim in the forming of juvenile minds that the instruction which is communicated by mere constraint makes a slow and feeble impression but that when once you have inspired the mind with a love for its object the scene and the progress are entirely altered the uneasiness of mind which earnest desire produces doubles our intellectual activity and as surely carries us forward with increased velocity toward our goal as the expectation of reward of ten thousand pounds would prompt a man to walk from london to new york with firmer resolution and in a shorter time let the object be for a person uninstructed in the rudiments of drawing to make a copy of some celebrated statue at first we will suppose his attempt shall be mean and unsuccessful if his desire be feeble he will be deterred by the miscarriage of this essay if his desire be ardent and invincible he will return to the attack he will derive instruction from his failure he will examine where and why he miscarried he will study his model with a more curious eye he will correct his mistakes 
the arrive encouragement from a partial success and new incentives from miscarriage itself the case is similar in virtue as in science if i have conceived an earnest desire of being the benefactor of my species i shall no doubt find out a channel in which for my desire to operate and shall be quick-sighted in discovering the defects or comparative littleness of the plan i may have chosen but the choice of an excellent plan for the accomplishment of an important purpose and the exertion of a mind perpetually watchful to remove its defects imply considerable understanding the further i am engaged in the pursuit of this plan the more will my capacity increase if my mind flag and be discouraged in the pursuit it will not be merely want of understanding but want of desire my desire and my virtues will be less than those of the man who goes on with unremitted constancy in the same career thus far we have only been considering how impossible it is that eminent virtue should exist in a weak understanding and it is surprising that such a proposition should never have been contested it is a curious question to examine how far the converse of this proposition is true and in what degree eminent talents are compatible with the absence of virtue from the arguments already adduced it appears that virtuous desire is wholly inseparable from a strong and vivid perception of the nature and value of the object of virtue hence it seems most natural to conclude that though understanding our strong percipient power is the indispensable prerequisite of virtue yet it is necessary that this power should be exercised upon this object in order to its producing the desired effect thus it is in art without genius no man was ever a poet but it is necessary that general capacity should have been directed to this particular channel for poetical excellence to be the result there is however some difference between the two cases poetry is the business of a few virtue and vice are the affair of all men to every intellect that exists one or other of these qualities must properly belong it must be granted that where every other circumstance is equal that man will be most virtuous whose understanding has been most actively employed in the study of virtue but morality has been in a certain degree an object of attention to all men no person ever failed more or less to apply the standard of just and unjust to his own actions and those of others and this has of course been generally done with most ingenuity by men of the greatest capacity it must further be remembered that a vicious conduct is always the result of narrow views a man of powerful capacity and extensive observation is least likely to commit the mistake either of seeing himself as the only object of importance in the universe or of conceiving that his own advantage may best be promoted by trampling on that of others liberal accomplishments are surely in some degree connected with liberal principles he who takes into his view a whole nation as the subject of his operation or the instruments of his greatness 
may be expected to entertain some kindness for the whole. He whose mind is habitually elevated to magnificent conceptions is not likely to sink without strong reluctance into those sordid pursuits which engross so large a portion of mankind. But though these general maxims must be admitted for two, and would incline us to hope for a constant union between eminent talents and great virtues, there are other considerations which present a strong drawback upon so agreeable an expectation. It is sufficiently evident that morality, in some degree, enters into the reflections of all mankind, but it is equally evident that it may enter for more or less, and that there will be men of the highest talents who live their lives diverted to other objects, and by whom it will be meditated upon with less earnestness than it may sometimes be by other men, who are, in a general view, their inferiors. The human mind is in some cases so tenacious of its errors, and so ingenious in the invention of sophistry, by which they may be vindicated, as to frustrate expectations of virtue in other respects, the best founded. From the whole of the subject it seems to appear that men of talents, even when they are erroneous, are not destitute of virtue, and that there is a fullness of guilt of which they are incapable. There is no ingredient that so essentially contributes to a virtuous character as a sense of justice. Philanthropy, as contradistinguished to justice, is rather an unreflecting feeling than a rational principle. It leads to an absurd indulgence which is frequently more injurious than beneficial, even to the individual it proposes to favor. It leads to a blind partiality, inflicting calamity without remorse, upon many, perhaps, in order to promote the imagined interest of a few. But justice measures by one unalterable standard the claims of all, weighs their opposite pretensions, and seeks to diffuse happiness, because happiness is the fit and proper condition of a conscious being. Wherever, therefore, a strong sense of justice exists, it is common and reasonable to say that in that mind exists considerable virtue, though the individual from an unfortunate concurrence of circumstances may, with all his great qualities, be the instrument of a very small portion of benefit. Can great intellectual power exist without a strong sense of justice? It has no doubt resulted from a train of speculation similar to this that poetical readers have commonly remarked Milton's devil to be a being of considerable virtue. It must be admitted that his energy centered too much in personal regards. But why did he rebel against his maker? It was, as he himself informs us, because he saw no sufficient reason for that extreme inequality of rank and power which the Creator assumed. It was because prescription and precedent form no adequate ground for implicit faith. After his fall, why did he still cherish the spirit of opposition? From a persuasion that he was hardly and injuriously treated, he was not discouraged by the apparent inequality of the contest, 
because a sense of reason and justice was stronger in his mind than a sense of brute force, because he had much of the feelings of an Epictetus or a Cato, and little those of a slave. He bore his torments with fortitude because he disdained to be subdued by despotic power. He sought revenge because he could not think with tameness of the unexpostulating authority that assumed to dispose of him. How beneficial and illustrious might the temper from which these qualities flowed have been found with a small diversity of situation. Let us descend from these imaginary existences to real history. We shall find that even Caesar and Alexander had their virtues. There is great reason to believe that, however mistaken was their system of conduct, they imagined it reconcilable and even conducive to the general interest. If they had desired the general good more earnestly, they would have understood better how to promote it. Upon the whole, it appears that great talents are great energies, and that the great energies cannot flow but from a powerful sense of fitness and justice. A man of uncommon genius is a man of high passions and lofty design, and our passions will be found in the last analysis to have their surest foundation in a sentiment of justice. If a man be of aspiring, ambitious temper, it is because at present he finds himself out of his place, wishes and to be in it. Even the lover imagines that his quality or his passion give him a title superior to that of other men. If I accumulate wealth, it is because I think that the most rational plan of life cannot be secured without it. And if I dedicate my energies to sensual pleasures, it is that I regard other pursuits as irrational and visionary. All our passions would die in the moment they were conceived were it not for this reinforcement. A man of quick resentment of strong feelings and who pertinaciously resists everything that he regards assumption may be considered as having in him the seeds of eminence. Nor is it to be conceived that such a man should not proceed from a sense of justice to some degree of benevolence, as Milton's hero felt some real compassion and sympathy for his partners in misfortune. If these reasonings are to be admitted, what judgments shall we form of the decision of Johnson, who, speaking of a certain obscure translator of the Odes of Pindar, says that he was one of the few poets to whom death needed not to be terrible? Let it be remembered that the air is by no means peculiar to Johnson, though there are few instances in which it is carried to a more violent extreme than in the general tenor of the work from which this quotation is taken. It was natural to expect that there would be a combination among the multitude to pull down intellectual eminence. Ambition is common to all men, and those who are unable to rise to distinction are at least willing to reduce others to their own standard. No man can completely understand the character of him with whom he has no sympathy of views, and we may be allowed to revile what we do not understand. But it is deeply to be regretted that men of talents should so often have entered into this combination. 
who does not recollect with pain the vulgar abuse that swift has thrown upon dryden and the mutual jealousies and animosities of rousseau and voltaire men who ought to have cooperated for the salvation of the world End of section thirty three